Hey, one last thing that I want to announce before I forget is that in your bulletin, it's been a while since I've mentioned this, there is a QR code right at the beginning with the description of who we are as a church, and that takes you to our welcome card. If you're new here at church, or even if you're not new, you've been around a little bit, but want to talk with me or Brian, hear more about the church, that's a great opportunity for you to do so, or just to introduce yourself. So this is your first time or second or third time here at Vespers, that's the way you can get to it through that QR code. Okay, we have made it through Advent, we've made it through Christmas Day, which fell on Sunday this year, we made it through New Year's last week, it's time, it's time to get back to the Book of Romans, y'all. You ready for this? That was a very tepid response. (laughs) Maybe I'm more excited about this than you are. We've been in Romans for quite a while, in fact, it's, I'm a little embarrassed to say how long it's been, it goes back to 2021. But we have made it through quite a bit of the book. We are at the end of chapter 11. That's where we're going to pick up. That's where we left off before we took a break for Advent. And that means we're well over halfway through this book. There's 16 chapters in Romans, guys. So we're getting close to like 75%. We're almost there. And we've got some good text ahead of us, that's for sure. But like I said, today we're kind of at the end of chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 32. Um, But before we read that scripture, I'm going to have you stand and we'll read the scripture here in a bit. I'm going to do kind of a little bit of a prolonged intro before we read it. Just because we're rusty with Romans. It's been about six weeks since we've been in. So we need to kind of refresh ourselves and remember where we've been in this book, what we've seen so far. And just kind of remind ourselves what we're about to dive into. So I mentioned, I guess it was back in November... That this section of Romans that we're in, that chapters 9 through 11, has always been kind of a, a curiosity to many scholars of the New Testament that study these things. Because Romans is just, it's very easily divided up into sections. Chapters 1 through 8 is just very simply this piece by piece, step by step exploration of the gospel. It tells you very clearly what Jesus Christ has done and his death and resurrection, and then the promises of God that we have because of that. So chapters 1 through 8, everybody says, yes, it's easy to identify that. That is gospel exploration. And then chapters 12 through 16, the end of the book, the part that we're about to get to, it's practical living. It's what do we do in light of the gospel? How do we live? How do we honor Christ with our lives? How do we live out of grace? So that's 12 through 16. We've got the gospel 1 through 8, practical living 12 through 16, but then chapters 9 through 11, nobody's really sure what to do with it. It kind of sticks out as this in-between piece. In fact, many scholars over the years have said that they kind of think it's sort of like a rabbit trail that the Apostle Paul goes down for a few, for a few chapters. Kind of like when you have coffee with me and I just start rambling on about random stuff for a bit, and then I bring it back to the point. That's what they think that Paul's doing here. He's just sort of rambling for a bit. And then in chapter 12, he'll reel it back in. But if you remember, when I told you all this before, months ago, we pushed back on that. And we actually said, no, this isn't a rabbit trail. This isn't some in-between section that doesn't fit with the rest of the book. It is vital. It is essential. 
it serves as this kind of hinge between the two sections that answers an incredibly important question that we have to answer before we move on to anything else. It answers this question. Is God trustworthy? Does he keep his promises? Because remember, chapters 1 through 8 has given us a lot of promises that come out of the gospel. One of them, just to name one out of many that you know very well probably. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. There's one of the promises in chapters 1 through 8. Can you count on that? Will God actually do that? Is he trustworthy? Now, some of y'all might be thinking, of course, that's a stupid question. Who would even question that or think that or wonder that? I I get you. It seems like a no-brainer a little bit. But the Apostle Paul obviously thought it needed to be answered. And I think it's because there was something, something that bugged him and many of the Roman believers that kind of stuck out like an elephant in the room. And it's this. What about the people of Israel? What happened? God's people, uh, Israel, the, the Jewish people, were the ones that from long, long ago received their earliest promises of God, his covenant. He promised them that he would be their God and they would be his people and that would last forever. And yet, in Paul's day, there were very few Jewish believers. There were very few Israelites who had received Jesus as the Messiah and followed him. In fact, the vast majority of Israelites had rejected God's Messiah and turned away from him altogether. What happened? And more to the point, what does that say about God? If he promised that they would always be in relationship, if he promised that his covenant with them could never be broken, what does it mean now that so many of them have rejected him and aren't in relationship with God? Did he change his mind? Did he break his promise? And like I said earlier, what does that mean for us? If he broke his promise to them, how can we be sure he'll keep his promise to New Testament believers? It's a big question, and the one that Paul has been trying to answer all through chapter 9, 10, and 11. It is not a rabbit trail. It is not some random parentheses. It is this essential question of can we trust God's promises? And to that question, he answers boldly, yes, we can. And the reason why is because even though it might seem that God's people Israel have been rejected, they have been cut off from God, that the covenant is broken. It is not actually the truth that that happened. If you look at it closely, if you think through all of the scriptures, if you realize what God is doing, you start to see that he has kept his promise to Israel. Or maybe more accurately, like we'll see tonight, he will keep his promise to Israel. And there's all these different ways that he comes at it. Starting in chapter 9, he has this one approach. And then chapter 10, there's another approach. And then chapter 11, there's even a different angle he comes at it. And that's the one that we left off with right before Advent. I don't know if you remember that sermon, but we looked at the passage where Paul uses this metaphor of an olive tree. 
And he talks about how that olive tree is being pruned and some branches are being removed and other branches are being brought in and grafted in. And even the first branches that were previously removed, they might be brought in too. And in that metaphor, he begins to suggest this solution to the problem. The problem of, did God break his promise to Israel? And the solution he begins to throw out is that no, God hasn't broken his promise because Israel's story is not over yet. It's not complete. There are still big things to come in their life and the life of God's covenant people. There's a future where amazing things are on the way. And that's what our passage tonight is really going to dip into. And so, forgive me, I know that was a very long scripture intro to this, but I think we're finally ready with that recap to read our text for tonight. So I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 25 and read through verse 32. Romans 11 says this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and to the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel... They are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to your sight. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. Go ahead and be seated. So what we read there in those verses is the capstone of all what this section has been leading up to. All of the different angles Paul's looked at, all of it kind of comes back to this one profound statement that we read in our text that said this, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Whoa. What Paul's doing is he's envisioning a future day when all of the drama of the present, all the drama of the Israelites rejecting Jesus and the Gentiles being welcomed in because of that, all of that drama will be leading to this final moment where all Israel will be saved. And so the question we've been pondering, does God keep his promise? Yeah. Because the story of Israel isn't over yet. And there is a future where we are going to see his promises to God's covenant people be fulfilled in ways beyond what we can imagine. Now, all Israel will be saved is a tricky statement, as I can imagine some of you guys are thinking. What, what does all mean here? How all is all, so to speak? All. Uh, that answered it for me right there. 
The, the man in the back says all means all means all. Okay, the end. But uh, it's not that simple, believe it or not. And there have been lots of different interpretations over the years about how to really understand what Romans is trying to say here. Some of those interpretations have been helpful, some of them not so much. <laughs> There's really a broad gamut of different ways of looking at this. But where I've kind of landed on this, and not just me, many other kind of commentators and readers of this text, is that what the scripture is trying to say is this. When it says all Israel will be saved, it means there is a day coming where you can expect to see a massive influx of Jewish people having their eyes open to the gospel and having their hearts softened to Jesus Christ and they accept and believe him and there is a massive ingathering of Jewish people to worship Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We have a word for this, revival. Massive revival in Israel. And just like we've seen historically, even in our own country, you ever heard of the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards? This whole region of our country, the Holy Spirit just descends in power. And people across the board from all these different walks of life are having their hearts soften. And they're seeing Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the first time. And it changes drastically the contour of a whole country. That's what's being spoken of here in this passage. That there is a day coming where no longer will it be just a small minority of Jews who know Jesus and worship him. But rather that would be flipped on its head and it would be the vast majority of Israelites who can say, I know Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. To go back to that metaphor of the olive tree we looked at weeks ago. It will be those branches that have been cut off right now. Once again being picked up and grafted back into the tree where they've belonged all along. So, does all here mean every single one of the Israelites, past, present, and future? I, I don't think so. Nor does all here mean every single person that lives within the borders or boundaries of perhaps the, the modern political state of Israel. Remember, what Paul's expecting here is not just that people would be saved based on their ethnic identity, but they'd be saved by virtue of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's revival that we're talking about. It's people believing the gospel and knowing him, and he expects that a massive amount of people amongst the Jewish nation would do that. We see it even uh, after he gives this quotation, which is kind of a compound quote from part of Isaiah 59 and part of Isaiah 29. But then right after that, he says this, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That's hearkening back to the, the passage we talked about how the Jews' rejection of Jesus actually opened the door for Gentiles like me to be invited in. As sort of funky as that sounds, that was one of the texts that we read earlier in this section. But then he continues, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Here's the promise coming in. Their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, people like Moses, people like David, the ones that God made a covenant with. Our promise-keeping God said, you will be my people and I will be your God forever. 
Paul's saying, those words weren't flippant. They weren't promises that God just throws out the window when he's tired of it. Nor are they promises that can be broken by the other party. God keeps his covenant because he's faithful. And if he said it, he's going to do it. That's why in the next verse, verse 29, it says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This brings us back full circle to that question that I told you that the whole section is wrestling with. Can we trust what God has said? Can you trust the promises you've read about in chapters 1 through 8 of this book? Yes. Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And it might seem to us, as we look out on, for instance, the state of Israel right now, that I don't know, it doesn't seem like God kept his promise to them. But the reality is, if you give it time, you are going to see that our promise-keeping God keeps his covenant. And there's a day coming where that's going to be incredibly obvious. If you're anything like me, though, maybe you hear all this, you read all this, and you're like, ah, that makes sense, I get it, I get it. But the nagging question at the back of your mind is, why? Why did God do it like this? Why did he have to keep his promises in such a complicated, inefficient way? Right? We, we've talked about this before when we've been going through this section. It seems like if God wanted to keep his promises, there is a way to do it where you could just draw a straight line from point A to point B. Doesn't have to be complicated at all. Doesn't have to take three chapters to explain. But instead, God decides to keep his promise through Israel by like drawing this squiggly line that's up, down, left, and right all over the place. It's very complicated when it could have been extremely simple, or at least it seems so to me. So why? Why do you do it like this? Why all this back and forth? Perhaps that's one of the reasons that when Paul starts the verses that we read today, he refers to it all as a mystery. Did you catch that right? Right off the bat, in verse 25, he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this word mystery here, it's very clear from the context that it's describing the how history is going to unfold. There will be a partial hardening of Israel, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and in that way all Israel will be saved. That's the mystery, the how of it. But I think he also uses the word mystery here to tell us a little bit about why. About why God's chosen to do, or not to, to do, to keep his promise in seemingly such a complicated and confusing way. Why? Well, the how mystery is very complicated, but the answer to that question, why, is incredibly simple. I think Paul sums it up with one word, mercy. The reason God's done it this way is to highlight his mercy in the life of every single believer. Look with me at the last verse that we read. It's verse 32. I think I might have it up on the screen underlined. Yeah, sweet. Verse 32 says this, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So why? 
Why all of this, Lord? Why all the confusing back and forth where the, a partial hardening on the hearts of the Israelites and then the Gentiles are welcomed in and then the Israelites get jealous and they come in later? Why does it have to be that complicated? Well, here's the reason, Paul says, so that his mercy might be preeminent. So that mercy might reign, that it might be the note that rings the loudest in every believer's testimony. That it might be the color that shines the brightest every time we look at the gospel. It might be the flavor that tastes the strongest when we consider what he's done for his people. God's done it this way so that every single person, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they lived a long time ago or whether they'll live a long time into the future, no matter where they've come from and what their background is, they will all say the same thing as they stand before the Lord on the end of history. They'll say this. I have nothing to boast in except for his mercy. That's it. His mercy is what's at the foreground of every testimony now. God did it this way so that that would be preeminent. I hope that's humbling to you. It's supposed to be. It's meant to kind of make our hearts meek a little bit and realize we don't have anything to boast in other than the mercy of God. And I, I read to you previously verse 25, but I, I, I left out the very beginning words of it. Let me go back to it and read it to you again. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. What's the reason that Paul is sharing with us this mystery? So that you're not puffed up, you're not proud, you're not wise in your own sight, so that you don't lean on your own understanding. The reason he's sharing this mystery with you, the mystery that's mercy, is so that you might be humbled and not fall into the temptation of, of thinking that your relationship with God is because you're better than others. Or because you're part of a people group that's better than others. Or even... It protects you from thinking that I know the mystery and therefore I'm more deserving than everybody else. No, the point of sharing this mystery is to humble you. And this is a point that I wish I would have known a long, long, long time ago. Because the truth is I'm, I'm naturally drawn to sections of the scripture that are like this, that are mysterious that talk about future events in a way that there's lots of different interpretations and you could read 30 different books that have 30 different ways of, of talking about it. And I've had that bent even before I was a Christian. I grew up in the church, but I didn't become a Christian until I was 18 years old. But growing in, up in the church, every now and then I'd hear a sermon or I'd see a Bible study that was about a portion of scripture that kind of sort of scratched that itch of wanting to know about future prophecy. And so I'd read books. I'd, I think, remember the Left Behind novels? I read those cover to cover. I remember going to this seminar in Rome, Georgia. Georgia's where I grew up. It was like this, this Baptist church. I probably was the youngest person there. Everybody else was like over 65, and I was a teenager going to this seminar. And this guy was going to tell you all about the end times. And he had this giant blackboard behind him where he wrote these blueprints about how it was going to all play out. And, you know, uh, it was, Clinton was president at the time. And I think he said Clinton was the Antichrist or something like that. It was, it was pretty wild. 
and truthfully, probably a little wrong-headed, but I was drawn to it. And yet the reason I was drawn to it is because I wanted knowledge. I wanted my head to be full of all of these facts and insights and data. I wanted to be puffed up with knowing things. And it wasn't even on my radar that the reason the Bible might speak about mysteries like this is for the sake of humbling us, not making us puffed up. In fact, doing the opposite, bringing to us a place where at least in this particular passage, we know the mystery so that we can highlight and exalt God's mercy and not our own achievements or knowledge or wisdom. I didn't get that. Truthfully, I might still not get that. It's a work in progress. But I wish, I wish back then that would have been more of what was presented. I say it for myself, but I also say it for the people that write books about this stuff, that give seminars about this stuff, that preach sermons on this stuff. Let us be a people that when we talk about the mysteries of the future and how God's doing it and why God's doing it, we see that the purpose is to bring us to a place where like that man in Jesus' parable, all we can do is beat on our chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it's meant to do highlight his mercy, to bring it to the foreground, to humble us as a people that say we have nothing to boast in except for him and what he's done. The mystery is mercy. Let me pray for us, and we'll sing one final song before we head home. Lord, there's so much about this passage that's still mysterious. There's still words and verses in it that I have questions about, and I'm sure many in the congregation have questions about. Lord, in time, open our eyes to see and to understand. But Lord, as we finished with, let our understanding lead us to humility. And let it lead us to exalting your grace and your mercy more and more in our lives. Not condescending over others, not being puffed up or proud but being a people who realize that we have nothing, that we stand on nothing except for your grace and your mercy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.